0: Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just wanna take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. All right, so now with all that being said, Let's jump into Scripture today. We're going to end up being uh, in a few different places. we got a lot of Scripture to cover, so I'm going to tell you the the places right now so you can go ahead and maybe uh, mark those places. We're going to be in Acts 2, then we're going to go to Acts 4 and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 8, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. Yes, uh, it is a lot. And so we're going to have to talk fast uh, and and move along uh, pretty pretty tightly uh, with this. So uh, somewhere in the middle, if I think I'm talking too long, I'll just say, oh, I need to be quiet and skip to the end or something like that. Uh, But I got a lot on my mind just from this passage, because we've been in this series called The Table. You'll see a a table up here. Uh, And we've been talking about the idea of what the table is. Uh, And that culturally speaking, we've really predominantly been looking at uh, Luke's gospel, his telling of the Jesus story. And he uh, has this motif that he returns to over and over again that is the table. Uh, And it becomes kind of a type or an image that really begins to not just uh, be a setting for the gospel, but actually begins to tell the gospel story. Uh, And Jesus begins to have uh, different interactions around the table. Uh, he, He has confrontations around the table. He welcomes people to the table and what it begins to elicit is this understanding that the table is both a place for welcoming but it also is kind of a boundary marker. It wasn't an ancient culture and in much uh, the same way it is with us today that the table represents for us the people we're close to and the people we're not close to at all. Uh, the people that we want to share community with and the people that we don't really feel so comfortable sharing community with. And what we've been talking about through this is that through the gospel, what God does is he begins to send out the invitations and he breaks down the barriers and he creates a table where all people are welcome. We've also learned that he calls all people to serve the table. We've, we've talked about a lot of different facets uh, in this. And I think the Lord is beginning to shape, <coughs> excuse me, within us uh, a, a lot of an understanding of what it means for us to be a church around a table well, today we're going to take one more step uh, toward that. And I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that probably is not the thing you think about when you think about the table, but it's something that you experience every time you go out to eat. Uh, there's a point uh, in the meal every time that you go out to eat near the end of the meal where there is a waiter or a waitress. Do we have any waiters or waitresses in here real quick? Okay. Okay. A few, a few over here. All right. These are the people you need to tip well, okay, church members. I'm gonna get that's probably the only amen I'm gonna get out here from, from this crowd, but uh, they, they do this work. And this is their job. At the end of the meal, you're sitting there. It's the point of the meal. You've enjoyed a good meal. You've eaten. Uh, you've laughed, all those kind of things. Uh, if you've got kids, you've got all the stuff underneath the, the table, all that kind of stuff, you know what I mean, where you're kind of embarrassed and you rush out at the end. Uh, we know who you are because we've been there. Um, this waiter, this waitress, they bring this thing called A bill. Y'all know what this is, right? This is the moment when you figure out how much all this stuff costs. And if you're on a budget, you've been trying to add in your head, you know, uh, if you're a a dad or a mom on a budget and you say, everybody's drinking water, you know, some of y'all doing that all the time. Some of y'all do that anyway, even if you're not a dad or mom, you're just like, oh, well, I'm not paying two fifty dollars for a soda, you know, or anything like that. But they bring that bill, you add it up, and sometimes it's a surprise, sometimes it's not. Every once in a while, though, um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen a few times in our lives we've had this happen where the waiter or waitress comes back to the table and we're expecting a bill and the waiter or waitress has said to us someone's already taken care of your bill. Now that might not have ever happened to you. I don't, you know, if it doesn't I hope it does at some point. But somebody in, has already taken care of your bill and then this is what we always do. We always go, we look around the restaurant to see who who could have done this? Who could have paid this bill for us? Because we all know, logically, right, that at the end of a meal, somebody's got to pay for it. Um, and usually it's us. Um, if you're with family or you're with friends, it's like that moment of like, well, are we going to divide the bill up? Or are we gonna, am I going to pay? Is it your turn? Is it my turn? All those kind of things. But every once in a while, right, there's this, this, this moment where somebody picks up the tab for you. But we all know that at some, some point in the meal, somebody has to pick up the tab. And most of the time it's you. And I think when we think about that, the reality that food costs, that the experience costs, it begins to talk about or reveal, I think, an element of the table that oftentimes we don't really like to talk about. It's not the most pleasurable part of it. But through the gospel today, what we're going to talk about is to see that that actually can be the place, the time, the end of the meal, the the picking up the tab can actually be the time when we see the grace of God the most in ways that we never have. So in order to set the stage, I'm just going to read the setting real quick in Acts 2. We're going to jump to Acts 4, and then we're going to see how that played out and transpired in one specific example in one of the early churches, this idea of picking up the tab. Uh, but in order to get there, Acts chapter 2, where this is kind of lays out the description of the early church. We spent some time in this a few weeks ago, but this is just going to set up the stage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. You, that, that word fellowship there is the word koinonia. It means essentially to a shared grace. Now, we understand grace uh, to be the unmerited favor of God. It's the thing that God gives us that we don't deserve. It's not just him taking away something from us, which is mercy, but he actually gives us something. And so when the fellowship came together, the church, they were joined together, not just as a group of people that were going through the motions, they were experiencing together a sharing of sorts. And it really began to define who they were. So much so that the next part of that very passage, the breakdown of what the fellowship was, the description looks like this, beginning in verse 44 and following all All right, so this is the backdrop, right? This is the description uh, of what fellowship looked like. And, and you'll see that in that, there's a whole lot of sharing going on. There's a whole lot of community going on. And that might ca- kind of get lost on us because it really doesn't look like what our lives look like a lot when, it, when it's related to church. But if you can just remember and press into this for a second, uh, what was happening culturally when this happened, well, it, it was uh, the celebration of Pentecost, and so this was that big celebration uh, after Passover, fifty days after the Passover, where all the Jews would come together into Jerusalem, a, a lot of pilgrims would make their way there um, from a lot of different places, and they would celebrate this feast of Pentecost and You remember what happened this particular Pentecost they weren 't expecting it, but the Holy Spirit comes, and then Peter goes out and he begins to proclaim the gospel and 3,000 people that very day, that very day of Pentecost, came to faith in the resurrected Christ, that Jesus had actually not just been a person that died a, a death on a cross, a cursed death on a cross, but he actually came back to life. And this revolutionized their life. The Holy Spirit then began to move, not just on them, uh, on the select few, but it began to be dispersed. And so now you've got this whole group of people that um, are visiting Jerusalem, which is not necessarily their hometown for many of them. And they are now uh, uh, brought into what you would call spiritual family. They've come to the table. And many of them chose to stay because they had to learn what what was happening, what was going on. uh, And they began to have these relationships. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see how this story begins to play out. Um, and the way it would play out uh, in our lives is if you go to another, another town that, like, let's just say you go to Memphis, right? You go to Memphis and you're there and something happens and, and you have to stay there. And uh, you know, there's, you know, you're not planning on staying in a hotel, but people bring you into their home. Uh, You begin to eat with them. You begin to form relationships with them. And now, this thing that was kind of like a mega church, three thousand people or so, now they begin to break out into homes. And this is just crazy stuff. I mean, I can't even imagine how disorganized it was and how um, just you know chaotic it would have been. But the essence of it was simply this: is that now. As relationships are being formed, there are needs that must be met that before would have gone unmet. And it happened in the context of the church. And If you fast forward just a little bit into Acts chapter 4, which is kind of our primary passage for the most part today, the description of what happened with this group of people just uh, just a little bit down the line looked a lot like what was introduced in Acts chapter 2. In verse 32, it says that all the believers were in one heart and mind. Now, let me just pu- push pause for a second because uh, when you think of unity and one heart in one mind, w- what do you think of? Like, I mean, do you think of like, um, I mean, you probably think of methodology. You probably think of philosophy. You might think of specific theology. Uh, there might be some things like, well, what does it mean to be unified of one heart and one mind? Well... We're going to figure out what uh, the description of what it meant to be unified around the Spirit was for the first church. But uh, before we get there, we have to know that why, why was this so important? Well, it's important because Jesus himself prayed for this very thing. I mean, in John chapter 17, this is frequently called the high priestly prayer. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. This is one of the things he prayed for. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. Speaking of the immediate disciples, the 12, he said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, Think about Jesus' prayer for just a second. He prayed that a group of people, post-resurrection, now he's pre-resurrection when he's praying this, of course, but post-resurrection would be a group of people that would be of one heart and one mind. And what, what would they do, and what would be the purpose of that? They, they would be one together and one in Christ. So what? So that the world may know, so that the world may believe that Jesus Christ was sent from the Father. Now, this poses a question to us because if unity is just philosophy, if unity is just methodology, if unity is just theology, then it's not completely visible, is it? Now, it's something to talk about, engage in, but for a watching world, the watching world doesn't really care that much about your philosophy, let's just be honest, Um, The watching world doesn't care a, a lot about our theology. Now, I care a lot about our theology, but let's just be honest, the watching world doesn't care that much about our theology. They don't really care about our methodology or our strategy for how we're organized and all those type of things. We care about that kind of stuff, but they don't care about that stuff. What would it take for the watching world to actually see unity, In a world that is run amok with individuality, with selfishness, what would it take? What does oneness in mind and heart actually look like to the people of God? Well, it it has everything to do with something very tangible with the table. And it has everything to do with your possessions and my possessions. Watch how it played out in the story back in Acts 4.32. It says that no one claimed that any possession that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had the gospel to become visible changed first how they saw their possessions now th- this is important because I, uh, we all have some possessions some of us have more possessions than others but we all I kind of have the same tension with our possessions, okay? So whether you have a lot or a little, whether your car is new or old, whether your house is small or relatively large, then you, you have a relationship to your possessions. You see your possessions in a certain way, and so do I. And if left unchecked, our, position, our possessions can actually affect us because we're in relationship to them. Here's just a few things that possessions can do, how we see our possession can first define our sense of identity. Um, This is real easy to see. Um, You are what you drive. You are where you live, uh, what you dress like. You identify with a certain look, and so you identify with a certain group of people. Uh, This is not hard to get to. We all wrestle with this. This is not a teenager thing. This is not a young adult thing. This is a human thing. This is the way that we operate. Oftentimes, what we have defines our own identity, but that's not all. It also can give us a sense of security, can't it? The lack of possessions or the accumulation of possessions, depending on where we are in that, we, we can have a sense of security or loss of a sense of security. I think that we've seen that over the last couple of years with the stuff with COVID and uh, kind of the tumultuous thing that's going on in the job market. Some of you have lost your jobs or you've had to relocate. And we, we go through those things and when, anytime something like that happens, it challenges our sense of security. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're not a person of faith. That just means you're human because there is power in the relationship of how we see our possessions. They, they affect us. They affect our identity. They affect our sense of security. But if we're not careful, our possessions can also consume us with individuality. There can be that thing that you get onto your two-year-old for when they say, when they pick up the ball and they're playing with a friend and they say, mine You know, um, it's, you know, you you expect a two-year-old to do that, but, you know, when the 35-year-old does that, it's really bad, right? But most of us live our lives with that, that tension, right, where we're consumed with ourselves. It plays into the way we see our own economics, uh, cultural economics, world economics. And if we're not careful, then we can be consumed by the power of possessions as it relates to our sense of individuality. We can lose a sense of corporateness or community because simply we see our possessions as things for our own use. And you can tell. There's two ways I think you can tell if you're wondering, well, how do you know? Well, I I think two diagnostic questions you can ask is first, what drives my decisions? When, when you have a decision to make, um, and not to saying that you shouldn't consider finances, that it is totally spiritual to consider your finances when you're making a decision, but what at the heart of it drives your decisions? Uh, the people of God should, at the end of the day, uh, be guided by the Spirit of God. Obviously, uh, the ethics of the kingdom uh, should, should guide how we spend our money, where we invest our money, uh, what we give to and don't give to, all those things. But at the heart of it, a question you can simply ask is, at the end of the day, when it comes to matters of faith and possessions, what drives my decisions? What's pushing me? Where do I usually give in? Is it usually the financial question at the end of the day and that alone? Or are there spiritual matters to consider? Are there relational matters to consider? Are there responsibilities to the world and the community to consider? And oftentimes our possessions can take such a root in our life that they begin to dr- drive our decisions. But you can also tell how powerful they are because it's not just about decisions, it's about the way we feel about our stuff. Uh, And so you could ask a second question, what dictates my emotions? Now, depending on what you have or don't have, um, I know this from personal experience, you're not going to be unemotional. It's funny, how much, uh, when, it, when it relates to money and possessions, it's funny, like when you look at numbers, numbers in of themselves are not powerful. They're just numbers. Uh, but sometimes when you're doing, uh, you know, old school balance on the checkbook, I know some of you don't even know what a checkbook is, but, uh, you know, you look at those numbers to do that. Or let's just say you pull up your online bank account. Maybe that's a better analogy. Uh, you pull it up and you see numbers on there. Well, those numbers, let's just be honest, have Emotional effects on us. Um, If there's an unexpected number, let's just say there's a a parenthesis around something. (laughs) I never knew parentheses could be so powerful, right? But it makes you feel something, doesn't it? It it elicits emotions. And that's normal. Uh, That's human. Uh, That's, you know, that's part of what it means to be us but it can't dictate our emotions. And when you look at this story, what happens is the gospel changed the way they saw their stuff, saw the way that, it changed the way they saw their possessions. And they were just human, just like you are. It dictated and drove their decisions. It dictated and drove their emotions. But through the power of the gospel, they begin to be transformed because there was basically a new narrative being written there was something that superseded the numbers or in their case, it might not have been a bank account, of course, it would have just been their possessions. When we think of possessions, we can probably think of money just as much as we can think of our lawnmower or our car because uh, they didn't have banks the way that we have them. They didn't obviously have uh, apps where they could check their balance. Uh, Their balance was whatever they had with them. you know. And so when you think about this, it's easy for us to just dismiss this part of the, of the faith for us. But the table dictates that there is a tab. And that tab is part of the experience. But when you look at the early church, they were in this transformative process where what drove them and what dictated in them began to change. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, changed the way they saw it, but they shared everything that they had. So just really quick, I'll throw the, the two points up there if you want to write it down. Because not only did the gospel change what, how they saw their possessions, the gospel changed how they shared their possessions. They, they didn't just look at them differently. Because a lot of us, that's what spiritualize, that's just how you look at things. But it wasn't just an idea for them. Because ideas are not visible, What was the thing that Jesus was praying for? A unity in one heart and one mind. It was something that the world could see. And what does the world see? Well, we just made it really plain. Everybody sees their possessions. It all has an effect on us. And so what changed was not just how they saw it, but it changed how they shared it. There was something about the action of sharing. And I wonder why that is. Well, I think it's pretty easy. Uh, You don't have to go very far. Because the most famous scripture passage in the world that most people have seen before at some point, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, when Jesus came, it was a visible, tangible expression of the love of God. It's what we sang about this morning. It was something you could see. It wasn't just something you heard about, thought about. God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, because God showed up. It was tangible, it was visible, it was an expression of love. It wasn't just a message where God says, I love you, that there's this God of love. How was love seen? Love was seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, when you have a faith that is rooted in a God that gives, a God that shares out of his abundance, then that should shape The way you see your things and the way you share your things. It should challenge and press against the individuality of our culture. It should press and push into all the emotions that we feel. It should begin to affect those things on deep, deep levels. It should change who we are. And let's be honest. The thing about the gospel that's so freeing because God gave is is it it frees us, doesn't it? it? It's good news. And some of us, when we think about releasing and sharing and changing the way we see our things, we see it like God trying to repress things or box things in. But you know what God's actually trying to do? Just like it is with salvation, God's trying to loosen the chains that are on us. He's trying to free us. To be who he created us to be in Genesis 1 and 2. In and, and freedom, in relationship, that's what he's creating us to be and to do. Not to be controlled by possessions, but to be partners with God in using them to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, that's what's happening in Acts chapter 4. Uh, where they're beginning to feel, sense, and model this gospel that God is a God of giving and sharing. And you can see the power that was in that. The power of that was uh, continued to testify the resurrection. They were proclaiming the gospel. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. What do you think happened? Well, this is what happened. When grace is powerfully at work, if you go to the next slide and finish that verse out, it says that there were no needy persons among them. The demonstration of the grace of God was not just something they personally experienced, it wasn't an emotional moment. Sometimes we think about uh, experiencing the power of the grace of God. And uh, when there's a personal moment, uh, maybe it even happened today when you were singing about the heart of God. And that's a good dynamic or facet of the spiritual life. Uh, There's a part where that comes in to us and it affects us and that's a really good thing. But again, that's personal, that's for you. But when the power of the grace of God really captures you, what we see described in scripture and instructed in scripture, prescribed, is that there will be a tangible effect outside our personal experience. It's not just about how you feel about things. It's actually not only about how you think about things. It's about what happens because you have experienced the power of a God that shares his grace with you, Now, when you look at how that plays out in the story, you, you, you see it this way. And then we're going to jump to one example. It says that from time to time, those who owned land and houses, <clears throat> so then brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So this became the way it played out, that there was a tangible expression, right? And so you can see that they would, uh, you know, they would see a need and they'd say, well, I've got a possession over here. And so uh, I don't really need it kind of like if you've got uh, two cars or two lawnmowers, or maybe you've got two pairs of pants, I don't know, and you're like, well, I only need one pair of pants, okay? Some of you are like, I don't know, I need two, but uh, I need one pair of pants, and so I'll sell this one, I'll go to Plato's Closet, get some money, and then I'll give uh, the rest of it to somebody else that needs it. Um, They took their possessions, they liquidated their assets, and they took those assets and they brought it to the apostles, to the church, because why? Because the apostles knew about these needs. And so they said, hey, we're going to bring it to you. Can you distribute it? And that's the way the story played out. Now, this was a powerful thing at the hub of the Christian church, which was in Jerusalem. Well, this ethic or this, uh, this idea, the way that they operated and the way that they existed was all on the fly. Uh, It was in real time, like we like to say around here. Um, It was intersecting with their real experience. And the thing you realize is that if you look historically at this, there was virtually no middle class, okay, in in the first century. Um, There were haves and there were definitely have-nots. my, my right uh, power controlled everything. Uh, and, and what happened generationally is the way that you would actually set up a 401k, if you want to say it that way, in modern layman's terms or retirement fund. It, you didn't have a bank account again. What did you have? You had land and houses. That's what you had. And this was your future security, and most of the time, if you had land, the reason you had land was because they had consolidated wealth. This is why they would uh, oftentimes consolidate wealth with the oldest son. Um, it is because rather than everybody, you know, like when, when somebody in your family maybe passes away and uh, if you've got three siblings, you take the assets and maybe the, the parent has done a will and they've divided it up three ways. Because in our mindset, we're thinking, well, it's best if we're just even with everybody, all right? Don't want anybody fighting. That was not the way they thought about the world because that's not the world they lived in. The world they lived in said, we've got to consolidate wealth over generations in order for the security of the family to be maintained over generations. And so the loving thing for them to do was to say, well, we're going to amass land. We're going to amass possessions because that was the only way to shelter yourself in the future. And so when they got to here, this is a powerful thing that gets lost on us. It wasn't just like, well, they had plenty. They were actually leveraging their future for the sake of another, a need that could be met. They were dipping into the 401k or the retirement fund that they've been amassing for themselves and their family, and they're pulling out, they're taking an early withdrawal from that, if you will, and they're saying, there's a need over there, I'm going to pay for it. This was the mindset that they had. Now. This, again, being in real time, meant that there were difficulties, all right? I'm gonna read a book of scripture here real quick. We're gonna to try to rifle through it, because I, but I think it's helpful to understand that this was, sometimes we look at Acts, and we're like, well, it's kind of like a utopian look at it. We can't really get back to that, and that's true. We're not trying to get back. We're trying to draw from a principle that actually drives in our understanding what we do. And so I think it's helpful to give you one example uh, that's still in scripture of how this transpired, because if you fast forward 15 to 20 years, in history, what you begin to find is there was a great famine that struck um, the area around Israel. Um, there was an overpopulation. There was a, a lot of pressure being put on the haves and the haves not was was a thing of course, but there was, there was not a lot of uh, food. There was not a lot of security um, and the church at Jerusalem began to really experience some difficulty. So all these people were looking at in Acts two through four, I mean, they're struggling 15 to 20 years later just to survive. They're uh, They're on fumes, okay, at this point, just physically, socially, economically, and all those kind of things. And so this famous guy we call the Apostle Paul, he gets this bright idea, and the book of Acts talks about this, to go out and take up a collection for the church at Jerusalem because there's so much struggling going on. And so he makes the rounds to all these churches that he's planted. He begins to send emissaries or uh, basically messengers to all these different churches. And it's it's the same idea that drives Acts 4. He's going to these different places and he's saying, hey, there's some people out here that are struggling. Can you help? This is what it means to be people of faith. And so one of those places was a church in Corinth and he made a few visits there we've also got two letters in the new testament first corinthians second corinthians there's actually three uh, trips that he made there we only have two letters but what we do know is that when he writes his second letter he addresses a different visit that he'd had i'm trying to express this as quickly as i can for sake of time and he'd come before and he had asked them to be prepared to help the people in jerusalem And now he's coming back kind of to collect because they've had some time to save up. And this is the way the story goes, okay? Just if you can kind of get that in your mind for a second. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth about the people that we just studied about, okay? They're struggling now in Jerusalem. And these people in Corinth, which was a good amount of Gentiles, okay? A good amount of non-Jewish believers now talking about people that they don't know This is what Paul says to them. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. All right, he's talking about another group of churches that were helping with the distribution of money, all right, to meet these needs. It's a different group of churches up in Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he's using this as a comparison to encourage the Corinthians. And he's talking about another church. He's talking about, man, how they gave. And when, they said, when he said Macedonian churches, he knew. I mean, everybody in Corinth knew who he was talking about and the struggle they'd been through. And they, they, he knew, uh, they knew that this was a group of people that were struggling financially as well. And if you see the way that Paul describes it, he says, I want you to know about the grace that God's given the Macedonian churches. Grace that he talks about is interesting because he doesn't talk about an experience. We would think the grace is like a salvation experience or a moment where the spirit showed up and everybody was like emotional. But no, the grace that he describes, you can kind of break it down as an equation. It was their very severe trial. That's a grace But if you add that to their overflowing joy and you add that to the fact that they were in extreme poverty, that equaled rich generosity. That was their equation for grace. This is what happens when the gospel takes root in a group of people is that you can be going through a very severe trial, you can be struggling financially, you can be filled with a joy that leads to rich generosity in the midst of your difficulty. This is what typified the Jerusalem church. Now he's saying this is what typifies the Macedonian churches. And now he's encouraging the Corinthian church and saying this should be what describes you as well. If you read the rest of that story in 2 Corinthians 8, it says, "'For I testify that they gave as much as they were able "'and beyond their ability. "'Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us (laughs) "'excuse me, for the privilege.'" of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. Now here's the key. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Catch that. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then what did they do? This vertical relationship began to have a horizontal effect. Then by the will of God also to us. So you hear us talking about culture of generosity around here. You're like, what in the world is that? Well, let me just give you a one-sentence description of it. Um, A culture of generosity is the visible expression of God's grace to us by living lives of grace to those around us. Lives of generosity, a culture of generosity is that we take the grace of God that has been bestowed upon us. And now we have a visible expression of that that is grace to those around us because grace is is not an idea grace is something tangible grace is something visible it is an expression of love and the church has historically as humans we have struggled because we like the idea of god's grace toward us but extending grace to other people which is tangible that cost us something is another thing entirely and we as christians can be consumeristic uh, individual, and individualistic and individually minded and we can just withhold our possessions because we see them as our identity, our security, all those things and the gospel begins to challenge and press into that and force us to see our things differently so that we can actually express those things the grace to the world around us and what does that look like? It looks like your stuff. It looks like the things that you have at your house, the things that are in your pocket, the things that are in your bank account this is where the gospel creeps in to every facet of our life because this is where we all live. This is the world that we live in. Well, if you finish the story out, and we'll wrap this up. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. So he's encouraging them to say, Hey, I've seen you grow in a lot of areas, but this is an area of growth for you. He's just challenging, uh, as as an apostle, he's challenging the church. He said, that You've got some area to grow here. Um, And that's not a bad thing. We, We want teachers to do this with our kids, we want coaches to do this with our kids. You know, we want them to say, Hey, this is where you're doing well. This is where you need to grow. And that's what Paul's doing. You need to, you're excelling in these areas, but here is the place where we think you need to catch up a little bit. Uh, and, and some of this, this might be where it hits some of you. You, you might be growing in knowledge. You might be growing uh, in, in another area uh, of your faith um, as it relates to trust in God and those type of things. Um, but what maybe God might be saying to you in light of this is, there's some room for growth here in the way you see things, and the way you share things. I want you to excel in the grace of giving. And he, he's careful, though, in the way he says it, because he says it, this in the next verse. He says, I'm not commanding you, all right, because it's not coercion. It's not manipulation or a guilt trip. I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. So he uses, he's saying, I'm not trying to compare you in the sense of like I'm trying to manipulate you, but if you look at what we believe, what is the most tangible expression of what we believe? You take what is yours and you give it to someone else. And then he finishes it out this way. This is how he finishes the whole thing. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so, to finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if a willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now, real quick. Um, here's two things out of this. Because we all, like, we're sitting here and we're like, hey man, good intentions. Yeah, you're right, Paul. You're right, Jesus. I'm not even put my name in there. Uh, we'll just listen to these guys. Um, I really need to do that. Well, Paul, he challenged him the same way. And it's the, the same thing that we all battle with in our own lives. It's intention versus action. Like, ah, I'm willing to. But the way we'll know if we're willing to or not is a week from now. It just takes a week to know if it's intention or action. That's really all it takes. Um, And you don't have to have anybody tell you that because your life and mine, many times, we've got all kinds of good intentions and little action. And he's challenging them and says, I know you are willing. You say, oh, yeah, I believe that's what God wants us to do. But as time goes on, we revert back and he's calling them to action. And he wants them to know that it's not about the amount, it's more about faithfulness versus the amount. It's not about like how much you give, it's about the faithfulness of the action. Uh, remember what Jesus, he, he tells a story that one time in Luke 21 where he sees the, uh, all these religious people going to the temple and they're rich people and they're dumping their money into the coffers at the temple. And then Jesus in Luke 21, he looks up and he sees uh, a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And then what did he say? Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Now, mathematically, that's not true, but spiritually it's entirely true. Because it's not about the amount, it's about the faithfulness of the action. And this is comforting to us because some of us are like, well, I, I don't have very much. You don't have to have a lot. It's, it, God is not asking you to fix everything. He's asking you to be, well, last two verses, last two little slides. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And at present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So this has two facets to it, all right? What does a culture of generosity mean? Two words, it means spontaneous, and it means strategic. I think that's the word, yeah, that's the word. Both spontaneous and strategic what I mean by that is um, you know what's cultural to you because you do it naturally. Nobody has to tell you to do it. Um, Nobody has to coerce you. Um, We have so many cultural norms that we just do things within our culture that we don't even think about. We just do them because everybody does them. It's what you grew up with. It's what you live, eat, and breathe. And one way that we see a culture of generosity and the reason we call it that is sometimes culture is just one of those things that we just do. We just become a people that spontaneously give. We see a need, we meet it. We see a need, we meet it. We see a need, we meet it. We don't see a need and go, oh, and then go off on our own. We see, God, what do you want me to do with what I have to meet the need? That, that is spontaneous and that is an element, but a culture of generosity is not just spontaneous. It's also strategic. That means that the way that you live out of a culture is intentionality. Um, you plan for it. You plan to be generous. Um, a story I've shared before, uh, I was at a conference with a pastor once. And uh, what do you do with all that money? I'm a lot of money from that. But here's the thing that I do. He said, I don't take any of that money. We, I don't even touch any of that money. All that money comes in and then... I give all that money away. And everybody was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And this guy said, "Wow, wow, you must be a really generous person. And everybody kind of laughed. And he said, actually, it's because I'm not generous that I do that. He said, because everything in me wants me to take all that money. He said, I had to make a conscious decision early on that that was not good for me. And so what do I do? I write books. The money comes in and the money goes out and I plan for it, that, that's strategic, okay? And that might relate to some of you, but think about how that relates to you, just the principle of that. Like what you have, it will take strategy for you. It will take thinking, it will take planning, and will take action in order for you to come to the table and be one of the people that doesn't just come to the table and say, well, I hope somebody picks up my tab. But for you to have the ability to go ahead and say, I'm gonna pick up this resources, that's finances, that's time, it's energy. It's, it's presence, it's all those type of things. And the reason I know that this is a big element of it because this is exactly what Paul had told the Corinthian church to do in his first letter. This is the last thing I got before you, the first Corinthians chapter 16. This is what he had told them. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. That when he showed up, it would already be ready. How did that happen? Every week, you break it down and you say, how am I going to not just be spontaneous this week? How am I going to be strategic with what I have? And when we do that over time, as individuals and as a church, then we develop a culture of generosity. And why do we do that? so that we can answer the Lord's prayer for us, that the world may believe that Jesus Christ was sent from God. Because the world is looking, and they're not just looking at your philosophy, they're not just looking at our building, they're not just looking at our methodology, they're looking at way that we relate to our stuff, and who and what needs are met around us. And that tells the tale for the world, because what are we? We're gospel people, we're a gospel church, And we want the world to know who Jesus is and what he's about. And the way we do that is we all invest together. Okay, so that's what I got. Uh, As we finish today, I'm gonna ask you to do this. We're gonna pray. I think it's appropriate. We talk about cultural generosity around here every week, but I think it's appropriate right now just to pray over um, all of our possessions and our hearts and ask the Lord to help us become a people that uh, pick up the tab, as it were, and to invest together financially. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray uh, together today thanking you for the fact that you lavished your love on us through your son. You were rich and you became poor so that through our poverty, we might become rich. And so we take that God and we receive that grace, but we, we also want to be a living expression of that grace to the world around us. And so Lord, would you help us to facilitate, the expand quality. There's people that uh, are out right now that are hurting and struggling. And we thank you. I thank you for the times in my lives, even this past week, and the way that you've ministered to me and my family um, through this sacrificial investment of others. Lord, we're so grateful that we live in a place where we're not alone. And I pray that we would fully embrace that and we would model uh, what you've modeled for us and what you've given us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.